0: I want to read to you a testimonial that I came across from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where testimonies are shared about people's addictions with alcohol. One of these testimonials goes this way. Everything changed with my first drink. I was 16 years old. All the fear, all the shyness, All of it evaporated with that first burning swallow of bourbon straight from the bottle during a liquor cabinet raid at a slumber party. I got drunk. I blacked out. I threw up. I had dry heaves. Was sick to death the next day. But I knew that I would do it all over again. For the first time, I felt like I was part of a group And I did not have to be perfect to get approval. I want you to think about these words that I just read to you. A confession. And I want to ask you a question about a raging debate about addiction. Addictions, are they a disease? Or are they a decision? If they're a decision, then we should just say, stop it. If there are a disease, well, there's not a whole lot you can do, except maybe take medication or have an operation. I wanna to suggest to you throughout our study of the Psalms that God's holy, inspired, and errant word provides for us a better path forward to think about the inner self and the problems of our society. And specifically, I wanna apply Psalm 36 to this debate and discussion. So we're going to study God's word, but the way we want to apply it is by thinking through the lens of addiction. If you have your bibles, turn with me to Psalm 36 as we continue this study of the book one of the psalms. And these 12 verses I believe give us an accurate description of sin, the depths that one will go to fool themselves in their sin. And in the modern lingo We would call it addiction. But at the same time, we're going to see a glorious and beautiful solution to the depths of our sin. A comparison and contrast between sin and love, between man's failures and God's solution to those failures. Follow along as I read. To the choir master of David... The servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep In your light do we see light. O oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evil doers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. And that ends the reading of God's holy inspired and errant word and I pray that he will write its truth on our hearts. In terms of an outline I hope it's very clear and obvious to you this psalm is very straightforward in the way it's structured. Verses 1 through 4 tell us about the depravity of man, the sinfulness of sin, and the wickedness of the wicked. Verses 1 through 4. Then you notice verses 5 through 9 there's a significant shift in tone and topic. The steadfast love of the Lord is expounded upon in verses 5 to 9, and then there's a closing prayer in 10, 11, and 12. There's the basic structure. If you were to study this further, I'd encourage that way of reading the psalm. In light of the big idea of this message, I would want to suggest this one pithy, simple statement. No matter how deep you are enslaved to sin, the love of Christ goes deeper to set you free. No matter how deep or enslaved to sin you are, it is the love of Jesus Christ that will go deeper to set you free. So let's take that sentence, let's just break it into two parts. Let's consider the sinfulness of sin and the depravity of man, the depths of our enslavement to it with point one. No matter how deep, You might be enslaved to sin, no matter how wicked you might be. And let's meditate on verses 1 through 4 first. I want to suggest that there's a progression, a deepening of sin in these first four verses. Starting in verse 1 with a much debated translation, and there's even in most of your ESV Bibles I would suggest probably a footnote telling you, well, there are different ways to translate this, and I don't think it will really make a difference one way or the other. Transgression, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, or it could be deep in my heart, as in David is saying, "Deep in my heart, I'm I'm having a meditation or reflection about the wicked." And I think why I mean it doesn't matter is that this subject matter is about the depths of one's heart, whether we're talking about David himself or we're talking about the wicked. And so the the matters begin deep within one's heart. And it's that Hebrew word pesha we've talked about in the previous weeks about breaking trust. So you have a marriage, for example. A few years ago, there was a well-known Christian artist, Derek Webb, committed adultery, and his wife divorced him. He lost his marriage. And in response to that, he shared, trust takes years and years to build. But it can take seconds to lose. Seconds. Transgressions. That's the idea of transgression, a relationship that's been fractured. And here we see that our passage begins by saying, transgressions, these matters. We're talking about the depth of one's heart. And more specifically, we're talking about the second half of verse 1, no fear of God before one's eyes. Which then convinces oneself that their sin is okay. Do you see that in verse 2? For he flatters himself in his own eyes because of the depth of one's sin in their heart. It then starts to play mind games and tricks with you. When sin starts to satisfy those deep longings and desires, you start to justify your sin Make light of it and tell yourself, it's okay. It's not that bad. One more time won't hurt. I'm not hurting anyone. Oh, but I feel so good right now. I can't stop. This is just who I am. We flatter ourselves. We do self-talk and we tell ourselves lies. And therefore, our iniquities can't be found out. We now hide. We live in the darkness instead of in the light so therefore a rejection of God a functional atheism a no a lack of fear of God leads to a covering up and a hiding of sin so that it can't be hated it can't be addressed it can't be confessed and that's verses one and two then comes deceit and denial in verse three The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. You not only tell yourself lies, but now you are trapped in lies with the people around you, especially the deeper you fall into some habit or addiction. And therefore, the thing that you maybe once hated, you now love and you obsess over it. Look at verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. What a poetic picture of someone lying down at rest at night and they're thinking about how they will get the next fix. Maybe that morning, the next day. Sets himself in a way that is not good and he does not reject evil. They're full on headed down a path of misery and pain. The way is not good. They do not reject evil. Addictions. It's not a word we see in the Bible. It's a word we use in our common everyday lingo. Based on Psalm 36, verses 1 through 4, and the description of evil and sin and wickedness, is it a decision? Is it a disease? Let me read you one more testimonial and think about this honest confession. This is again from the big book of AA. One person writes, I picked up a half gallon of whiskey one day after work. I drank a third of it in less than four hours. I was so sick the next day, but I still went to work. When I got home from work, I sat on my parents' sofa and knew, I knew I would start working on that half gallon again despite the fact that I was still very ill from the night before I also knew that I did not want to drink sitting on that sofa I realized that the old I could not stop if I wanted to I just don't want to didn't apply here because I did not want to drink I watched myself get up off the sofa and pour myself another drink and then when I sat back down on the sofa I cried My denial cracked. I believe that I hit rock bottom that night, but I didn't know it then. I just thought that I was insane. And I just finished the rest of that half gallon. The reason I read these testimonials is because it is very clear that the depths of one's heart and the deception of one's mind that is stuck in sin, enslaved to sin, it is not so clear as to say, stop it. And it's not so clear that this is just some sort of disease. Therefore, our two categories that are going around in this conversation about sinful enslaving addiction is just not helpful. And it certainly, I don't think, will lead to life. Can't you tell by just listening to that testimony that they're like ambivalent? They're confused. I hate the thing that I love. Wonder how many of you might find yourself in a very similar dilemma. Even as a Christian, even as one who has strongholds of addiction that you hate, you hate them. You once loved them and just was all in on that thing. And it could be so many things. The situation of Psalm 36 is not particular about an object of worship necessarily. But anything that is less than God Himself in verses 1 through 4. Which is why it contrasts in verses 5 through 9 with the steadfast love of the Lord. In his helpful published dissertation, Kent Dunnington gives seven ways to diagnose addiction. He says there's tolerance and withdrawal. Have you ever built up a tolerance to coffee or painkillers? And then start feeling withdrawal over those symptoms. when a few days without any coffee after you've started building up an addiction to coffee. And sometimes we talk this way, and Kent Dunnington helpfully says that these first two symptoms are what he would call minor addictions. They're not to be seen in the same category as a major addiction where one's heart and mind is so self-deceived and confused. You're probably not in the shower thinking, when am I going to get my next coffee? And if you are, it might be a major addiction. So he goes on and says, there are cravings, physiological cravings that your body longs for that object that you have continued to feed. There's this ambivalent internal conflict. There is the idea of relapse. You could be sober for months, years, but still have the ability to relapse. That's when you know you're dealing not with a minor addiction, but a major one. And then lastly, the two things that we saw, especially in Psalm 36, an obsession and a denial, an inability to tell oneself the truth and an inability to tell others the truth. So I believe it's helpful for us to hear some of these teachings, these observations. Kent Dunnington's a professor at Bioli. He's a Christian. He's done a lot of work from a Christian worldview and a biblical perspective to try and think through this third way of thinking about addiction and enslavement to sin. Probably one of the other reasons why this has been on my mind is not just from Kent Dunnington's work, but recently I have started getting trained by a former pastor of mine in Washington, D.C., Deepak Reju, is a full-time counseling pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and he has offered several pastors that he's friends with, including me, some training on how to fight a specific addiction called pornography. And we had our first session this last week, and we covered addiction. And he provides four simple A's. So if you're a note taker, or you want to just think about a way to biblically approach the topic of being enslaved to sin, the way verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 36 discusses, I suggest this little internal-external paradigm from Deepak Reju's book on pornography addiction. He says the four A's of addiction are first, external, access, and anonymity. And what he means by that is there's something that you can get that then becomes a God, and you have access to that thing. So in this case, it would be access to pornography. The anonymity is that you don't typically do this out in public, you do it in hiding, and this is where our Psalms language is helpful. In verse 2, it says, This iniquity cannot be found. When you're addicted to something, you don't do it out in public. You're ashamed by it, and and that's where this internal reality starts to set in, and that's the other two A's. So first two are you have access to something that becomes a god. A good thing could even become a god thing. And then you start, in hiding, feeding the addiction. Third, appetite, cravings, longings, desires of one's heart. Is it clear to you from reading Psalm 36 that transgressions and sins are about the deep longings of one's heart? They have an internal reality to simply say that it's an external problem like a disease, you just need some drugs, or to just simply say that it's just some decision. Stop doing it. We can't choose those two paths as a church and as believers. I think we need to realize a better path forward. And so the last A is atheism. I think that one corresponds really well with our passage. There is no fear of God in their eyes. They have rejected God's ways. They have no reverence or respect or dread over what consequences would happen. The love and obsession of this thing has taken over. And so, in summary, access to an object of worship done in secret, anonymity, Fulfilling the cravings and appetites of one's heart as a rejection of God, no fear of God in their eyes. Four A's of addiction. And I think Reju has helpfully said so instead of the decision disease paradigm, here's one simple summary of verses one through four in addictions voluntary slavery. It is moral, it is a choice. It is a path that one chooses according to Psalm 36 and I think most of the Bible. Our addictions aren't simply some sort of disposition one is born with and therefore they have no control whatsoever to make any decision. It's just the fate of who I am. And that is not to disregard that some people are dispo or have dispositions towards certain tendencies. It's not the point. It's to say that we are not limited to that perspective. You could be born with a certain sin tendency because of your family, maybe your DNA, your biology, but that does not mean that you have no voluntary choice and you are going to forever be enslaved. Instead, addiction is a voluntary slavery. And I think that captures both the moral and the physiological aspects of them. And so as we consider this first idea, I want to suggest this idea for many of you that might be thinking, you know, Pastor Phil, this is great, helpful Clarifying, sure, sure, sure. I'm not addicted in any major addictions. And praise the Lord for that. And I would suspect that that's the case for many of you. So what about you, though? If you're presently not struggling with a major addiction, how might the rest of today's message and your meditations on the wickedness of sin, the depths of sin, the enslavement of sin, knowing that some of your brothers and sisters are here in this church, Some of your family members or friends are. How should you think about this reality? And this is where Kent Dunnington is extremely helpful. He suggests that addicts are like canaries in a coal mine. I've never heard of this little expression or saying, apparently it's a saying, like a canary in a coal mine. A canary's a bird and coal miners, I don't know if this is true or not, does anyone know? Like they really legitimately did this or it's just a saying, yes they did. It's true. Coal miners would carry a bird in a cage into the tunnel of the coal mine. The caged bird would help alert all of the other coal miners that if the bird died, that there was poisonous gas. And since the bird's small heart, breathing rate, high metabolism, compared to the other miners, say, for example, carbon monoxide was in the air, a small amount of that would kill the bird before it would kill the miners. Ken Dunnington says, addicts, those of us that we might put off as the wicked, they are like the canaries in the coal mine. They tell our society and our church and our community the sort of things that we are going to kill ourselves over. They alert the rest of us who are not in those addictions to pay attention, What's at the heart behind these addictions and in what way are you susceptible to them if you just sit and do nothing about it? When a society or community starts to see especially repeated addictions to a certain substance or object, that means the community is not providing the access and the encouragement and the support for deep moral and spiritual goods that will help the addict. There's a longing in the heart. The addict, like that little bird, is telling you, see how I have fallen prey to this. As we see that, all of us should take note and as a community provide for them the very resource that they need, the spiritual goods and the support that they need in order for them to fight against this decaying death. So we began with a testimonial. Listen to it one more time. And I want you to think about the longings of this person's heart. Is the thing that they really want a buzz? Is it alcohol? Or is there something deeper within that you and I all want? Everything changed with my first drink at the age of 16. All my shyness, all my fears evaporated with that first burning swallow of bourbon straight from the bottle during a liquor cabinet raid at a slumber party. I got drunk. I blacked out. I threw up. I had dry heaves. I was sick to death the next day. And I knew I would do it again. Because for the first time, I felt part of a group without having to be perfect or get approval. It's not about alcohol. There's a longing deep within one's heart that is driving somebody to something. It could be a good thing that becomes a God thing and it destroys one's life. But when you listen to that, you think, why in the world would you get drunk, blackout, throw up, dry heave, be sick to death the next day, and then no, I'm going to do that again the very next day. Who would do that? People who have an emptiness that feel as if not the alcohol itself, but the community and the approval or the satisfaction that is deep within one's soul. We will go to incredible lengths to convince ourselves and others around us that the thing that we're doing is not harming us, but it's helping us. And that's the ambivalence. That's the confusion. That's the deceit in one's own mind. And then that plays itself out Here's one more example. This is from Carolina Knapp. She wrote a book called Drinking, A Love Story. And just a little excerpt to, again, make the point, using the imagery of drinking alcohol and the addiction of it and showing that it's not about the alcohol. She says, It's the question we all lived by. Every single alcoholic I've ever met believes the following. I'm discomforted, and then I drink because I want comfort. I'm afraid, so I drink. Now I'm brave. I'm repressed, so I drink. Now I can be open. I have pain, so I drink, so that there will be self-obliteration from the pain. Knapp writes, at the heart of alcoholism, feels like the accumulation of dozens of connections, dozens of tiny fears, hungers, and things that rage within, dozens of experience and memories that collect into the bottom of your soul, coalescing over many drinks into what becomes a single liquid solution. All of these things coalesce and become a solution to the longing of one's soul. That's enslavement to sin and the depth of sin. Psalm 36, 1 through 4, paints a picture of that. But praise be to the Lord that that's not the end of the psalm. And that's not the end of this message. As we said, no matter how deep or how enslaved one is, the love of Jesus Christ is deeper and will set one free and give them the longings that their soul desperately wants. Satisfying those longings by the love of Christ poured into one's heart. So let's read verses five to nine again. Let's consider deeply, let's drink from the well that is the steadfast love of the Lord in verses five to nine. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Brothers and sisters, guests and visitors, Psalm 36, verses 5 to 9, declares to you that the love of God that is displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only solution to the deep longings of one's soul. We must, as verse 8 says, feast. The hole and the emptiness and the thing that leads us to some sort of addictive habit or as Reju said voluntary slavery. Why did I choose this? Because of my atheism, my failure to believe all that God could be for me by coming and dwelling in his house, verse 8, and feasting upon him, his character, his righteousness, his deliverance, his goodness. And I want to especially just make sure it's clear to all of you that here in verse 8, I think we have a little picture, poetic meditation of the whole Bible, one little nutshell. Why? In verse 8, it says, They feast on the abundance of your house. So that's talking about being in the presence of God and feasting and being satisfied and drinking from the river of, and then this is the part that you won't see unless you read this in the original language, the word delights is the word Eden, E-D-E-N. So, read that verse again. And you give them drink from the river of Eden. The word Eden literally means delights, but it makes me think that in light of all of the creation imagery at the first half of verse 5, 6, and 7, that its meditation is a meditation on the God who created everything. And that his creation displays the invisible attributes of his character and his goodness. Your steadfast love extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like a mountain that has its peak up into the heavens. It's this massive, immovable object. Your judgments are like the great deep. So from the highest heaven to the mound of earth to the abyss that is under the earth. That's the conceptual world of the ancient peoples. And it's giving you all three zones of existence and saying whether we go all the way to the heavens or we live on the earth or we look down into the depths of the abyss, God's character is on display. In his creation, God reveals himself to us. So how precious is God's steadfast love? How precious is his wings that cover us and heal us and redeem us and save us? So then come under his wings, find refuge from this world that continues to deceive and tell you lies, like that serpent in the garden that would say, Are you sure God really said? I think that you should eat and take. It will give you something so beneficial. And it did give them something, but it was not beneficial. Feast on the abundance of God's house. Submit yourself to him and realize that we can drink from the, the river of Eden, the river of life. That's the imagery of this. God's very presence is being depicted in a poetic way as rivers of water. And without water, there is no life. It's a dry and weary desert wasteland. But rivers are Are the very epitome of life and flourishing in the world. So, we want to feast on the fountain of life because in him we can see. He is the sun by which we can see everything. And that's why we worship him and our hope is in him. And this steadfast love of God that is Generally, being displayed in creation is more specifically displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why our big idea was not just God's love, but the love of Christ, the Hesed love of Jesus Christ, which is not just emotional feelings. The reason the word steadfast is in front of the word love is because it's about a commitment, a commitment to one's promise and saying, I will be with you, I will never leave you, and my commitment to you will not fail. There is security and safety in God's promises and commitments, and they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who becomes for us the depiction of all that we've just read in verses 5 through 9. Isn't it the gospel that displays the love of God? Isn't it Jesus Christ and his death on a cross that helps you know that God's commitment to love us is never in question? How many of you sometimes think because of your circumstances, because of your sin, because of your addictions, you think, God couldn't love me? His steadfast love goes deeper. It is more patient. It is more everlasting. And we know this because Romans 5 tells us God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. My bedtime ritual with my children is daddy loves you, mommy loves you, grandma and grandpa love you, et cetera, et cetera. But most of all, Jesus loves you. And then I say, John, how do you know? Eva, how do you know that God really does love you? And the answer should be, because we've done this so many times, because Christ died for my sins. And then I repeat to them, Romans 5:8. I tell them that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that we can know his love. He demonstrated his love for us. We know the steadfast love of the Lord because Christ's death. If you don't have a little ritual to teach and instruct your kids, you can have it. I haven't copyrighted it. Use it. Use it to yourself before you go to bed. Tell yourself when you're lying on bed. Instead of plotting schemes of how you will find your fleshly desires fulfilled the next morning, think. Do I know that the God of the universe, whose righteousness expands and extends, and there's no limit to his righteous character, love for me and the world, he saves man and beast. How do I know that he's going to save me? Christ died for me. Furthermore, I think we should consider the fact that Jesus becomes the living water that we will thirst no more when we drink from him. Isn't this the fulfillment of verse 9 when we come to the New Testament? We see Jesus at a a well of water. And there's a woman who has had an addiction to some kind of sexual sin. She's got five different husbands. Maybe life dealt her a bad hand. We don't know the backstory. The point is Jesus exposes what was hidden in the darkness, brings it out to the light. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She said, "If, if you really knew who I was, you would have asked for the living water. The water that one drinks and they never thirst again. That's who Jesus is. So when we read Psalm 36, we can rejoice and celebrate in the the general goodness of the Father's character that's being revealed in verses 5-9. through But we don't have to stop in Psalm 36. We can read this in a Christ-centered way and realize that the fountain of living water is none other than Jesus the Christ, the living water. Have have you drank of Jesus? People are drinking alcohol to fulfill the longings of their heart. Have you tried drinking of Christ? And if you're wondering, that sounds weird, what do you mean? First and foremost, learn how to meditate on Scripture. And by faith, apply God's Word into your heart and see if that won't be similar to the experience of one drinking day after day, week after week, and say this fulfills and satisfies like no other object that has ever been on my lips or in my mind. Another thing I would consider is come to church, hear the gospel preached, and then drink of the Lord's Supper. And remember that as we eat and as we drink, it is not just a little unnecessary detail of the service it is a climactic moment where we apply God's word and we say I believe that Christ satisfies that his blood was shed and as he hung on the cross he thirsted so that we could be satisfied do you remember those words where he said I thirst as his mouth was parched he became the desert so that you could drink from the fountain this is Jesus this is the gospel. And that's the only solution to your addictive patterns, habits, or even if you have minor addictions, or smaller sins. All of them come to the fount of Christ and see if that fulfillment does not set aside everything else. Atheism was one of those four A's of addiction. Faith in Christ is the antidote to atheism. Realizing all that God is for you in Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of these promises. I'm hoping it's increasingly obvious why John Whipple came up and read for us Revelation 21 and 22. Did you pay close attention to the language of the end goal of all of human history, the way that the new kingdom of the new heaven and earth will be? The glory of Jesus will be such a radiant brilliance that there will be no need for temple or light or sun or moon. Reminds me of verse 9. In your light do we see light. There is a kind of light that flows from Christ where in order for life to exist, it must have light. In order for life to exist, it must have water. And Revelation 21 22 gives us this garden-like city temple, except there will be no temple, that temple will be fulfilled in the body and person of Jesus. And so this Eden-like fountain is running down the middle of the new Jerusalem from heaven. And why will there be no more wickedness? Why will there be no more verses 1 through 4? Why will the prayer of verses 10, 11, and 12 of Psalm 36 be answered? When David prays, God, keep your steadfast love close to us and drive out all wickedness from the earth. How's that prayer going to be answered? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns. When the fulfillment of the gospel comes to its climactic conclusion. And when he does, we will be so satisfied in him that our entire being physiologically will change And we will thirst no more for any other lesser gods. There will be no more atheism. There will be no more anonymity. No more night. No more darkness. There will be no more appetites and cravings of the flesh. There will only be a fulfilling desire that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ as we feast on him forever. So friends, as we take the bread and the cup in just a minute, realize that right now we're saying, We believe by faith that that day is coming. And if you eat and drink, do so saying, I I, I want to and I want to voluntarily enslave myself to Jesus. I want to commit myself to a habit like coming to church or reading scripture or being in community or being in discipleship relationships or getting counseling in order to voluntarily commit myself to be enslaved to the truth instead of a lie. And I believe that will be the path forward. You're going to be a slave to either unrighteousness and the desires of your flesh or you'll be a slave to a greater master Christ. And each of us, you have two ways to live before you. Which will it be? Taking the bread and the cup requires you to not just hear this sermon, but for you to respond with faith and repentance or rejection and stiff arm and say, I'll do it my way. And the little canary is showing us our way is not working. And it's a matter of time before the poisonous oxygen of this infested world we live in of sin corrupts your mind and heart take warning. See those around us in our society and community and realize that the longings of our heart need to be satisfied with something that can truly fill those heart longings. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Christ and we want to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform and set free. I want to thank you for the way psalm 36 describes to us both the evil wickedness of sin but then at the same psalm the beautiful description of your love and your commitment to your promises we are thankful that all those promises are yes and amen in jesus and we want to pray now that we would remember that many of us here have been baptized and have eaten and drinking. Your love meditated on your character and goodness. And many of us have been set free from the enslavement of our addictions. The spiritual goods have been offered through the preaching of the gospel, through discipleship, through the local church. And there are new people sitting around here right now. And we pray that your spirit will encourage some that are hiding in the darkness to come out into the light to want to confess, to get help, and to feed on Christ, to understand how the gospel can set them free. We want to pray that the church of Jesus Christ would be filled with people that are willing to share, and that we wouldn't be like a a Sunday book club where we study a book and we go home and there's such a, a fake superficialness, a kind of deception where we go around and we act like everybody's okay. Lord, the suicide rates, the number of people depressed, the number of people on anti-anxiety and anti-depression medications, et cetera, et cetera, the list is so long. The evidences are all around us and we're desperate to pray for your help and your spirit to bring about revival and renewal in the lives of people that desperately are enslaved to sin. And we wanna pray that your spirit will do that and we would give you all the glory and praise. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.